Democracy Podcast. I'm Lunella Rivera. And I'm Gina Cristo. On this podcast, we look at what's happening in both local and national politics from a different perspective, what we call deep democracy. The belief that those at the margins should be at the center, and that including all voices gives us a more complete view of the system. We look at everything from gerrymandering to abortion, immigration to climate change through that lens, which means that what you hear on the show is going to be a little different than what you hear on most political shows. Or a lot different. We hope you enjoy it, and we hope to hear from you too. Now, let's get to today's show. All right, so what did you think about the debate last night? Woo! Well, I'll say this, folks. Sometimes I don't like to toot my own horn, but I'm going to. Okay. I've been saying for months that Julian Castro is the breakout star that we need to hear. Mm -hmm. So it was just amazing to finally have the country get to hear from him directly. Mm -hmm. So that was like my number one takeaway. Yeah, I agree. I think he cross-examined Beto in a way that every progressive has been waiting for. Like we let him have it last year because he was going against Ted Cruz and we were like, you get that, you cute little white man, like you had long hair, whatever. But now he's out here just you pretending to be a progressive and not holding the line, especially in immigration when it's like from his former congressional district. The best moment of the night for me was Cory Booker's face oh when Beto started talking in Spanish. Yes. And I need, I need listeners to understand this. Like, it is extremely cheap, cheap politics and, and very proper. It's propaganda. Yeah. Like, going back to like the 50s in this country and if people had any sense of history it actually goes back to like people's current like relationship to politics in latin america yeah to be spoken to in certain ways at a time when only certain people should be listening and he didn't even answer the question he didn't answer the question it was so cheap i know it was just so cheap and then everybody started trying to figure out like should i speak spanish should i speak spanish i was just like stop yeah i thought that was really really yucky like really yucky and all, but also, I will say the look on Cory Booker's face. Someone said on Twitter was like, "He stole my idea," and that's honestly the vibe I got. <laughs> and listen, like, well, I mean, if Cory had to mention to us one more time that, like, you know, he's from Camden, I mean, I get it. It's, uh, you know, it's what, it's what. I don't even know. And like, okay, oh my god, I hate Cory Booker. I really don't want to hate Cory Booker, but I really don't like him at all. And he went on this like progressive healthcare rant like being like we need to attack the pharmaceuticals and i'm like are you gonna do that because you have hundreds of thousands of dollars of pharmaceutical money well he's saying that he's not taking money from pharmaceutical okay well that was like that's all i heard but it's been like a year since he stopped doing that okay so as a presidential candidate but you're gonna tell me you don't have those relationships like that's a load of shit so one other point i want to bring up because i am gonna toot my horn again oh boy (laughs) I'm doing this this time. And it's also because I really, I want listeners to be tuning in more to like what we have to share on, on, on this, uh, on this podcast. And look, months ago when everybody kept on talking about how Elizabeth campaign was fledgling, Mm -hmm. um, and folks would call me, you know, for sort of insider scoops on like, what did I think or background? I said the same thing over and over again. I'm like, look, something interesting is happening over there. Mm -hmm. They're actually legitly trying to figure out how to flip the playbook Mm -hmm. in a presidential race Mm -hmm. against odds and risk of conventional logic. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly, and it's it's paying off. Mm -hmm. Someone asked me the other day, you know, what's the marker that you're waiting for to really decide whether or not she's the one? The voters will decide. Yeah. When the first primaries come up, and the fact that it's a proportional system and it's gonna be a long primary season, Mm 
that's when we'll we'll be able to judge whether or not what she's the decisions that she's made were the right ones. And anyone that continues to harp on this, it's because you have an unconscious bias and you don't want women to lead. Right. Also, just for context, we this is the day after the first debate. We haven't seen the second debate, so I'm sure that Joe Biden has done something super dumb. I feel like we've talked about Uncle Uncle enough. Joe enough to Let's just let it break. be. I mean, now we break. have you know what? Now we have a real uncle. And it's Uncle Isley. I love Jay Inslee. Oh, Inslee, sorry, Inslee, Inslee, Inslee. I love Jay Inslee. He is a, one of the only white men running that I feel comfortable with. He's really good about the environment. He's he doesn't great. scream. He doesn't scream. He took out, uh, he voted against the Hyde Amendment when he was in Congress, um, when it was not a really popular thing for him to do, particularly in his district. So I really like him. I would. He'd be a great uh, chair of the EPA, if that still exists by the time Elizabeth Warren is president, you know. Um, but yeah, he was really good. I liked him a lot. Well, wait a second, Gina. I just heard you say that uh, next time the, the when, when Elizabeth Warren is president, mm-hmm. have you made a choice about yes, who? Yes, I well, am in. There is a sticker on my laptop. Uh-oh, guys. So now you know you got bias coverage from one of okay, us. Okay, it's not bias. <laughs> I can be objective. I like Julian Castro. I think he'd be a great VP. But, you know, I... I just love her. Like, I just love that she has a plan for everything. And I love the way that she's deploying uh, organizers in Iowa and New Hampshire. Like, I love the way that she's having such touch points with people. Like, I just, I, I just believe in her. And, like, I don't think, she gives me, like, idealism tingles that I know we're going to be. I wish oh. listeners can see, can see the love, like, emojis coming out of, like, my out of her eyeballs right now as she speaks to me. <laughs> I just like I don't know. Obviously, I don't think you know electability is a whole bullshit gender thing. And but unconscious I, bias. But I think that you know there there are going to be challenges yeah. for her election. But I wouldn't be honest in myself if I didn't like support the most progressive woman in the race. No, and I and, and I couldn't agree with you more. And I think you mentioned something that I think it's important to for for listeners that that are you know sort of still kind of wavering through this whole political thing. In the last two cycles, looking at sixteen and eighteen. Um, conventional logic of electability was completely thrown out the window, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, those that were leading ended up losing, and those that, ra- that, that raised the most money also lost. Yep. Um, and that happened. We were there. We were there. Um, you know, 16 happened, right? Yeah. Um, and then 18 happened in, in the reverse, you know, with us gaining more seats. Mm-hmm. So how about we try to move more in that direction mm-hmm. and double down on that mm-hmm. um, as opposed to going back to our unconscious bias? Mm-hmm. And for folks that are unfamiliar, it's, just, you know, unconscious bias is just, it, basically what it means is that we have a social construction for what who we deem to be electable. And because 44 out of, out of our 45 presidents have been white men, guess how you're socialized to think who's going to win? Who can win, right, right, right. So if primaries are about making, a, about choosing your values, mm-hmm. for anyone that's about, well, I'm really scared of Trump, Fear shouldn't be what's making your choice at this stage. And really not at any stage, honestly, with you guys, but especially at this stage. Choose a candidate, just like Gina, Mm -hmm. that's most ideologically aligned with you. Mm -hmm. Don't worry about whether they can win or whether they can't. You make them win. You go knock doors for them. You go support them. Guess what? 24 of the 25 candidates running for Democratic president are not going to be one. Mm -hmm. So guess what? Most of you are going to lose on your preferred candidate. Mm -hmm. You might as well stick with the one you really, really like now. So that that way, the amalgamation of all those values can maybe, Mm -hmm. 
maybe give us a consensus as a platform, as a party. Because guess what? We don't have one. We don't. It's so interesting to watch the party decide who it is right now. It's such a... It's crazy. It's crazy it's to crazy. watch it. It's crazy to watch people like, like Beto talk about Medicare for all and being in favor of that, but not having the logistics or the execution to articulate it and like is still very pro private insurance and i you know i want us i'm glad that the hyde amendment is a conversation center which is kind of wild to me like i feel like like two she the people right that was women of color that was amy allison like and continuing to organize yeah it's just it's been incredible to see the conversation shift and the the bottom line is is like i'm supporting elizabeth warren because she's creating a platform for democrats that i most agree with it's not Mm -hmm. just about elizabeth warren and how she'll execute it but how she will lift that up mm-hmm. to a platform level, party level mm-hmm. situation. And also, let's be honest, guys. The reason why she has the, the the ability to make these different kinds of like choices this time around, unlike some of her her peers that are running, is that she's not doing the fancy big level donor network. Mm-hmm. And guess what that does? That frees you from their political obligations. Mm-hmm. Listen, I. I'm Political a- funding matters, folks. Go into the FEC, make her your best friend, and Google. Do your little Googles. Do your Googles. I, you know, I'm a finance director by trade, and so I was a little, like, verklempt when she was like, I'm not doing call time or big donors, and, you know, we'll see how this next FEC filing comes out, but... I think it's keeping her clear of mind. I think it's clear, keeping her with people who are actually voting and the people that she wants to pursue. And so um, anyone else not anyone else running for office who's not running for president definitely needs to do call time still. Just want to put that out there as a piece of advice. You have to do it. Um, but I'm proud of what she's built, and I'm proud of the people she's hired, and I'm just proud. I'm just proud. I just want a woman president. I'm ready. I want no student debt. You know? I want to just transition, so... I'll leave it at that. You want a just transition? What yes. Is that, what does that mean? What does that mean? It means that I recognize that both parties have gotten us here, and I'm going to do my best to hold mine accountable as much as I can because we're still not quite there. So That is so true, which is a great way to segue into talking about the immigration clusterfuck that is this country right now. Um, so there's been a lot of coverage, particularly from the New York Times, about the facility in Clint, Texas. Um, there are hundreds of children, children, being held there um, in conditions that they don't have beds, they don't have soap, they don't have, you know, adequate food. And it's just, it's a disaster. You know, the our government actually argued in court, in the Ninth Circuit Court, um, that the amenities such as soap and toothbrushes shouldn't be mandated under the legal settle, like settlement originally created about families migrating and us housing them. So when we talk about never again, and I know that this is on Twitter a lot right now if you're in that echo chamber, but when we talk about never again, our government is is in court arguing against people's humanity. And that is something that we as a country are going to have to live with for the rest of our lives. And sometimes, you know, people love to talk shit about Hillary, but I guess they really were a basket of deplorables. That's what I'm saying. And, you know, and I'm always one to... To always say that, like, we need to be able to speak to each other from a place of love. But when you can't actually see someone's humanity, then you don't deserve that. Mm-hmm. You know, you are a basket of deplorables. And regardless of what the economic or social reality that you're facing or not facing, that you're okay with that tells me everything about where we are. And, you know, and honestly, regardless of whether you're a basket of deplorables or you're someone that is choosing to, to say, well, 
this is just going to pass by and as soon as you know Trump's not there anymore this is all going to disappear lies that infrastructure that they're using to warehouse these 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 children wasn't built by the Trump administration it was built by the Obama administration that's right so that when you know so at the end of the day it's about who we want to be as a country right. and that includes all of us those that are that identify with any of those labels and those of us that don't right mm-hmm. because the reality is is that what we are saying at this time in our country's history that it's okay to go back to a time period where we dehumanize people and when we jail them completely because mm-hmm. that's what we're doing and we don't want to talk about the fact that like look at the end of the day there is a there has been a coup in, in honduras that that happened several years ago um under the obama administration and we looked the other way mm-hmm. um and just let them install you know the next president even though we knew they were corrupt as they can be and we've looked the other way for decades mm-hmm. we've looked the other way for decades and the same thing is happening in guatemala they are real refugees mm-hmm. we have completely changed the tenets of our international framework mm-hmm. overnight mm-hmm. and yet we have democrats that still want to negotiate with this administration as if these are normal times yeah like they have figured out how to get the entire business community behind behind them on this because mm-hmm. if it's a profit it's a profit in this country. Right. And what we're finally saying, what, what some parts of our country are saying, Gina, is that money is more important. I'm okay. Yeah. Venezuelans, like that is a huge humanitarian crisis. And they're most of the asylum seekers who are coming over, the people who are risking their lives to be here. And we're just going to turn them away because we've decided to change the definition of asylum. Like, it's just utter bullshit. It is such utter bullshit. And Democrats got us here, Republicans got us here. It's people deciding that their politics are easier than dealing with the humanity of people. And you know, and at the end of the day too, it's it's such a it's such a it's such a um, you know, the United States needs to confront its identity. Yeah. And a core part of its identity is Latinos. More than half of United States residents eventually will be more connected to Latin America than they will United States. Mm-hmm. And 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 we have to deal with that. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously, as you can, you know, hear from my accent, <laughs> I am a Latina. But I've always said this. Mm-hmm. The the amount of economic opportunity and cultural potential that we can unlock if we actually created bridges mm-hmm. and structures, whether they're governance structures or otherwise, to really unite the Latin America with the United States, it only makes sense mm-hmm. for all for our collective humanity and prosperity. Mm-hmm. And if you care about money, then come along because there's a lot that we can unlock on this way, but it can't be money before people. No, it can't. And that's basically where we are. And I, I think that... You know, to continue to think that somehow the United States is going to maintain a, a, a European homogeneity when it when it, it just doesn't exist anymore. Also, it's not what our country is built on. Our, it's like, not. The, I mean, like, listen, listen, the history of this country is absolute trash. But, like, you know, there is something to be said about the rhetoric around the melting pot and Ellis Island and all that shit. And it's like, well, that was comfortable for you when everybody was coming from Poland and they were white. You exactly. know what I mean? So are we just, are we not this amazing melting pot anymore? Mm-hmm. Cool, mm-hmm. cool, cool. I got it. I got it. I see where we are. I read this great book once that is completely escaping me the name of it right now, but it basically articulated that immigration is a social construction. Like the, the concept of borders is a complete construction. And also the American economy from its fundament, like from the 1900s on, is based on undocumented immigrant labor. We created this influx of people to, to feed an economy without having to pay people a fair Look, wage. Before there were lines of sovereignty, it was religious lines. Right. Right. So it wasn't until the Treaty of Westphalia that the construction of borders even was, was in place. Right. And the reality of what, of the times that we're living in, our global economy has made the notion of borders mute. But yet our governance structures are still have like tightened are it, still it t- are, like. literally yeah. they're tightening yeah. it because they know that that's the la- literally the last straw they have to keep the, the, the world as is. 
But how can you benefit from a globalizing economy while limiting people of color and people immigrating into your community when you're depending on that labor, when you're depending on that underwaged, undocumented, quote unquote, undocumented labor? Like, it's just it's just such epic hypocrisy. And, you know, we shouldn't be surprised. Right. Because this is what power is in this country. Mm -hmm. And it always is what it's been. I mean, look, the, the, what's similar to the 60s and what's similar to now is that folks that were living in the 60s and, and, and us today is that and this goes to the statement I said earlier that I'm about the just transition is that we're uniquely you know placed as a generation you know similar to that whole generation that we're in the world of today but also living in the world that's emerging mm -hmm. and that duality creates choices for some of us right mm -hmm. some folks are saying i'm gonna double down on the world that we've had mm -hmm. but when we know that the world that we've had has basically put people on the margins mm -hmm. that they're one to two degrees away from disappearing including like entire body masses mm -hmm. <laughs> of land that means we need to reckon with that as we go into the new world because if we don't when i say we let me take a step back <laughs> the dominant class mm -hmm. is making a choice who gets to be part of the new world mm -hmm. right and these are very unique stages mm -hmm. in like human history and i think what's different about the 60s versus now is that even though there was an economic realignment that started to begin in the 60s it really hasn't come into full maturity until now mm -hmm. right we're mm -hmm. feeling the full maturity of that entire evolution now and it's sputting us into another economy mm -hmm. but it's done so at the cost of our environment and of people of color and people that are at the margins however we want to describe those people to be mm -hmm. right so when i say let's be on the just transition team it's because i want to be with people that care to that, that we have to address that as we go through this process and mm -hmm. it can't just be like well that didn't work. We're going to just dump all these people, yeah. leave them behind, and just focus on my future. Yeah. You want systematic change that understands the humanity of people. Yes. What a concept. Not fucking putting... Kids in cages. Kids in cages. And also... Not and not just that, but like, it's just, you know, at the end of the day, you're, you're doing the same thing that happened during slavery. Right. Like, you're literally splitting families apart so they could no longer ever see themselves again. Yes. Right? So what you're doing also is trying to take Latinos into this country, mm -hmm. but completely erase where they come from. Mm -hmm. Because when they no longer have family, you no longer have a cultural connection to where you come from. Mm -hmm. And it gives you the perfect fucking minority. And that's the shit that like really fucking scares me because at the end of the day, a lot of these kids have been placed into families mm -hmm. and completely disconnected and from their own. Too. Yeah. Yeah. And also like, who are these families? Uh, what, what keeps me up at night as it relates to the kids and the adults. Retirees that want to do good. Well, what do we know about that? Like we know that that story is not. I did quotation marks. You couldn't see me. I really don't fucking believe that. I, like, Slave labor is what the fuck they're looking for. I'm scared about the sexual abuse. Yeah. Because I feel Indentured like... Indentured servitude. Yeah, all of it. I feel like that's What happening. makes you think that that's not happening? Oh, of course it's happening. You think they care? No. They were, but why isn't anyone reporting on it, though? Look, I mean, look at what's happening in the, in the detention centers. It takes lawyers that have specific access to get into these places to then share that. Mm -hmm. You know, at the end of the day, like, they're making these 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 places opaque for a reason mm -hmm. right and and I, and I think at the end of the day that's why like we tried to talk about these topics on this show because the reality is is that 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 gridlock of how the news cycle works doesn't allow for this information to like really bubble up mm -hmm. um and the reality is is that like the american people have a day of reckoning coming one day mm -hmm. one way or another whether you know i don't think anyone can like speculate or try to predict when that's going to happen and i don't um but it's coming do you think it's like an electoral reckoning or a different kind of reckoning? I think it's a cultural reckoning. Yeah. 
And we're experiencing it electorally right now. Right. But what will be the cultural flashpoint? I don't fucking know. That I don't know. Because at the end of the day, as we're talking about these, uh, you know, the, the detention centers, it makes me think about this fucking lawyer who, like, went up to these judges to defend, like, you know, the, the administration's um, right. case. Right. Who then went on on her personal Facebook to try to, you know give face for like you know i'm trying the best i can da, 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 da. and it's just like i care about these oh, kids too white women and it's just like you oh. know you don't you don't get to have it both ways you really don't you really don't get to have it both ways on this one you know and i think that that's a great transition for our actual dumpster fire of the month our believe it or not fire. we're not even at the real fire guys we're just walking through the edges it's true but let's let's crackle right on in to that to that big fire um, so the Democracy Dumpster Fire of the Month, uh, that award goes to Wayfair. Uh, Wayfair is a furniture company. Is that what it is? Or yes. Do more than well, furniture? It's, yeah, it's a furniture sales. Furniture uh, yeah. sa Online furniture sales It's like company. the Amazon of furniture. Yes, yes. <laughs> They're based in Boston. Um, and it was discovered by Wayfair employees this week that Wayfair was selling beds to the concentration camps down at the border and they were getting paid it was like a basically a government contract um you know hundreds of thousands of dollars to to put this bed furniture in for these children who are locked up in cages and um the way the wayfair employees were not having it they wrote a letter that was basically like we absolutely reject this we don't support this we want you to donate the furniture as soon as possible and basically cease and assist with this relationship um their demands were completely ignored and so on wednesday of this week they did a walkout at 1 30 where they basically walked out of the wayfair building which is right in downtown boston um and protested and said we're not doing this we're absolutely not doing this wayfair at one o'clock a half hour before the walkout pledged to donate two hundred thousand dollars to the red cross who has nothing to do with what's going down there guys nothing to do with it no, and and they even you know previously the the workers had made demands to donate to an organization that was dealing directly with the issues at the border and they basically trolled them and donated to the red cross who i think a lot of people know have some sketchy spending history when it comes to disasters and also a lot of their money goes to overhead which is also controversial so fuck wayfair <laughs> fuck them so hard that is such an absolute disgrace for them to be profiting off of the abuse of children and you know and i think the other thing i want to add and this is you know this is what happens when you have a, a finance uh, a finance person <laughs> on the team you know um she also you know this giving history Y'all, so there is this website called politicalmoneyline.com, and you can check anyone's federal giving history. Say it one more time for folks. Politicalmoneyline.com. Thank you. And click the advanced search button at the top, because that's how you can really get the details. Um, and basically, the CEO, Naraj Shah, donated $30,000 to the GOP last cycle and $10,000 to the Massachusetts GOP last cycle. His chairman donated the exact same. Now, I will say that they did donate to Democrats, moderate Democrats like Claire McCaskill, who I have feelings about, but we won't go there. In, in From Missouri, who no longer is no serving. No longer holds her seat. And the Wayfair PAC does donate to Democrats. However, 
$33,000 in politics is a massive donation. That is a major donor level contribution. That's how he found out about this. And it's Sumptifier. And this goes back to the same point we were making earlier on this on this show about political funding, right? And both parties being responsible. The business execs understand that part of the, the price of doing business in this country is to give to both parties, mm -hmm. right? But not just both parties, you know, because when you can give at the party level, you're the uber elite of donors, mm -hmm. right? You're not just giving to an individual candidate mm -hmm. and maxing out, which at this stage is $2,800. For, mm -hmm. for federal candidates, for mm -hmm. folks. But th what you're also saying is that I'm going to go up the ante, mm -hmm. right? So, mm -hmm. like, you're extra committed. You're investing in the infrastructure of the Republican Party when Trump is president. Exactly. What does that tell you? It tells you that they want to collaborate with an oppressive government. And it tells us the reason why our, our democracy is trash. Yeah. Because the rules of engagement allow it so that those that have the most money can have the most influence, influence. right? Yeah. And we got good old fucking Mitch motherfucker McConnell. I'm sorry, guys, for all the fuck bombs, but I always got to go there because I think he has been enemy number one for at least 15 years and we yet have yet to pay attention to this man. You know who has a plan for that? Elizabeth does. Elizabeth Warren. <laughs> Shanti Golar serves as the political director for Emerge America, which is the only organization dedicated to recruiting and training Democratic women to run for office. She's been in this game for about 15 years. She started as a grassroots organizer and activist building with women and communities of color around progressive causes. She is experienced in coalition building, developing programs and community and political engagement. Prior to Emerge, Ashanti served as the National Deputy Director of Community Engagement and Director of African American Engagement for the Democratic National Committee. Um, she also served as the Manager of National Partnerships for the United Way Worldwide and was a political appointee by the Obama administration at the U.S. Department of Labor. Um, I have had a Twitter professional crush on Ashanti for as long as I can remember, um, and it was so awesome to talk to her. She also hosts the Brown Girl's Guide to Politics podcast, similar to us, where she interviews and collaborates with women of color who work in politics. You should definitely give it a listen. New Yorker writers are some of the best out there. And beyond publishing the best writers in the world, the New Yorker holds people in power accountable through rigorous reporting and compelling storytelling. They really do, both online and in print. The New Yorker covers so many topics, politics, news, climate change, you know, popular culture, arts, food, cartoons. There's pretty much everything. What I love about the New Yorker is they, they really get into the underbelly of stories, you know? Well, a lot of times what you get is a surface topic about, like, for instance, what's happening on the abortion topic around the country. What they will do is that they get into the, uh, the underbelly of the other side, you know? And that's what I really love about The New Yorker. They're always willing to go dissect all sides, especially the ones that we need to be listening to the most. So right now, Deep Democracy listeners can get 12 weeks of The New Yorker for just six bucks, which is half off. That's like, that's like two cups of coffee. You know what I mean? That's like nothing, right? Um, you get home delivery of the print each week, unlimited access to thenewyorker.com with 10 to 15 exclusive site-only stories every day, and access to the app, online archive, crossword puzzle, and more. And guys, honestly, this is my favorite. Don't forget the tote. You get an exclusive tote with that package too. Just go to newyorker.com slash deepdemocracy and get 50% off when you enter Deep Democracy at the checkout. Go get that deal. Can't slow down. We drive.
Shanti, we are so excited to have you on the podcast. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. You do incredible work at Emerge, and also you are one of my favorite people to follow on Twitter. <laughs> um, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I just like, I love, I live for it. It's great. But I want to, we want to take the opportunity to get to know you on a deeper level. So first, we'd, like, we'd love to know what brought you into politics. How did you get here? So I tell the story that I've loved politics since I was young. My mom got up from the couch one day and I turned the TV and I discovered C-SPAN. And I was, I know. (laughs) I love you. (laughs) (laughs) And I just became intrigued by all of these people who were arguing and fighting, but they were fighting for a cause and what they believed in. But even at a young age, as I continue to watch C-SPAN, I realized I didn't see a lot of women and I most mm-hmm. certainly didn't see a lot of women that look like me. Mm-hmm. And that's where that love of politics came from. But it really didn't come to fruition, me really wanting to get involved in politics until high school when my government teacher, Mrs. King, had two candidates come in who are in a very contested race. And we got to ask them questions. And I asked them both about raising the minimum wage. And it was just something I was very passionate about because I had lots of friends who had after-school jobs to bring in extra money for their house, to save up to buy that car. And I just think in general, people should be paid a fair wage. So the one candidate said that, yes, he voted for it. The other candidate lied to me and said that he did vote for the bill to raise minimum wage, and he didn't. And I kept calling him out on it, and he just kept lying to me, and it made me so angry. You had your first accountability session in high school. I love it. (laughs) But after he left, he called my government teacher, and he said, I lied. She's right. I didn't vote Teresa. I was just angry that she called me out. And it just pissed me off so much. And I was thinking, is it because I was young, because I was a girl, and I couldn't vote? And all of those things were true but I could still volunteer. And I volunteered for his opponent every yes. every free moment that I had. And his opponent won that race by less than 500 votes. This and- is an amazing story. Oh, my God. I'm sorry. I don't mean to interrupt you. Continue, Shanti. But this is an amazing story. But continue. But that showed me the power that people had in politics. Even if you couldn't vote yet, you could still talk to people who could vote and influence their vote and make them aware of the issues. And I just started getting involved when I was in college, doing college Democrats, doing young Democrats. But even then, I still didn't know, could I do this professionally? Because I didn't see a lot of women of color who were doing it in Nevada, my home state. And I had to look outside of Nevada to D.C. to see women of color who were doing it, such as the color girls. So Leah Daughtry, mm-hmm. Manuel Moore, mm-hmm. Donald Brazil. And I was very lucky that LaToya Jones, who was being mentored by them, she saw something in me that I didn't even see in myself. So she just started bringing me into the circle, and the minute there was a job available at the DNC for an executive assistant role, her and some other women encouraged me to apply, and I applied, and I got that job, and that has been my journey in politics ever since. It really just started with discovering C-SPAN and having a man lie to me. (laughs) That... (laughs) 
<laughs> is incredible. Girl, having a man oh. lie to you will always, we'll you know, will always get up. us, will always wake us up just in many ways. Like, when, oh when my do God. they learn? When are they going to learn? Don't lie to us. They're not. Oh. We're just going to vote them out. <laughs> That's right. That's what, you know? That's right. You know, what I love, you know, there's many things that came up as you shared, as you shared that story to, to us. But one of the things I, I want to just follow up a little bit more and have you talk to a little bit more is, um, you know, you talk, you, you talk a little bit about um, Latoya and kind of how she kind of brought you into your under her wing a little bit. Can you talk a little bit just about how how important um, the power of mentorship has been been to you in in your in your journey? Um, uh, just curious to to hear a little bit more. Oh, absolutely. I think mentorship is very important. But I'm not one of those people who's going to say, and I got here all by myself through hard work. Mm-hmm. I hate when people say that because that's BS. Mm-hmm. You in some way were aided by other people. And for me, that has been women. It's been LaToya. It's been Congresswoman Shelley Berkeley, who gave me my first job in Nevada politics. I volunteered Mm -hmm. for her all the time. And after I graduated college, she was pretty much, all right, you're doing this stuff for me for free anyway. I may as well pay you, which (laughs) I appreciated. But really having that investment, it is important. And it's one of the reasons why I really wanted to start the BGG is because I know that I have been very lucky and very blessed to have those women who have mentored me, who have provided me guidance. But other women, especially young women, they're not going to have those opportunities. So I wanted to present an outlet where we could share those stories and help those women come along. And even today, where I'm at in my career, mentorship means everything to me still to be able to call up my fellow sister circle, my tribe and say, what do you think about this? Or when you have that really bad day and people are making you think that you're crazy, but you know, you're not crazy. Mm -hmm. And you don't call up that person and be like, okay, I, you have that friend. We all have that friend who will tell (laughs) you you are wrong. You have to have that friend. So I call up that friend. I was like, all right, just listen. This is what happened. Like, let me know. Am I crazy? Am I (laughs) not crazy? Or are they crazy? Because I don't feel that I'm crazy. I think they're crazy. (laughs) Oh, man. I love it. I love it. You have to have that. And it's really important. And as you grow, I think it's also important to realize that your tribe is going to change, too. You're going to gain some people. You're going to lose some people. Speak to that. Speak to that, Ashanti. Yes. And when you lose people, it does hurt a lot. Mm -hmm. But um, I was talking to my one friend, Simone Ward, and it's just because we're no Oh, my goodness. We've been working with Simone on something else, but I love me some Simone. Simone. I love how small the ecosystem is. (laughs) And I love Simone, and I was telling her, when I got my job at Emerge, you know, working in, let's be honest, a predominantly white space, yeah, I knew that I could do it because I had seen Simone do it. So mm. even being able to look at her and be like, okay, I belong here was important. But we were talking about when you lose a friend, that doesn't mean that they're your enemy. That doesn't no, mean that you have no. any hatred or animosity no. towards them. You're just not as close as you used to be. And you have to be grateful, too, for those new people that come and help you along. Mm-hmm. Because after I would lose someone, I would get so, so guarded and just not want to let anyone in. And you have mm-hmm. to learn that you, you can't be that way. There are some people who do have really good intentions and want to be helpful. 
and those people are now part of my sister circle, of my tribe, my advisors. And, and you need those people from different walks of life, too, to help you out. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. You made you made reference to the Brown Girls Guide to Politics, so let's uh, let's go there. Yeah. Right? How did how did that come to be? How, what made you decide that you wanted to you wanted to do that, and and how has it been? It, it's been amazing. I tell people this this was just my hobby. I literally was thinking, okay, I'm going to start a blog, and maybe ten to fifteen people will read it a month, but. <laughs> I just really started getting lots of emails from young women who wanted to get involved in politics and they didn't know where to start, how to start. And I really wanted to have the time to talk to everyone, every one of them, and give them that advice, that guidance, that mentorship. Mm -hmm. And I just started thinking, okay, what would be a really good outlet for them to not only hear from me, but to hear from other women and then just start playing around with things. I thought a blog would be a really good way to do that where I could get some of my friends, other women of color that I knew just to share our experiences. And I remember when I started sending out the email to the contributors, I was really curious to see who would respond back because basically what I was saying is, hey, you're interested in putting your political business on the internet with me? Yeah. Yeah. And so many many of them replied back yes, which made me really happy. And then just really spent four months just working on what it will look like, figuring out how do you even start a blog. I literally put into Google, how do you start a blog? And just really designing it. And we launched it in April just really to be a resource for women who are in politics, who are interested in politics, to really come together and to tell our stories. Mm -hmm. Because I love reading about like other women of color, Mm -hmm. but I think Mm -hmm. there's something different when it's us telling our personal experience and being able to talk about it and to let those young women of color in particular know Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. there is a place in the political world for them because I was that girl once who didn't know if I belonged here. So it's saying to them that, yes, you do belong here, and here's all the different avenues that you can take to get involved because no person has the same journey as someone else, Mm -hmm. and helping them craft their own journey to figure out How involved do they want to be? Do they want to run for office? Do they want to work on campaigns? Do they want to be that stellar activist? And giving them the tools and the resources and an easy-to-place find to get started. Love it. I love it. Um, So I'm going to switch gears a little bit. Um, And I I, I know you obviously do a lot of deep work on the the political side of uh, progressive politics, but I want to go back to your your time during the Obama administration. And I'm hoping you can share a little bit more about your your experience um, and the role that you played at that in in that work. So it was very much an honor to serve in the Obama administration. Again, never thought that I would be able to work for the first black president, but I was at the Department of Labor, so I got to work for Secretary Hilda Solis, who has become a great mentor as well. And how that happened is I was at the DNC during the time, and one of my colleagues had went over to the Department of Labor to do the African-American engagement for Secretary Solis, And she ended up getting promoted 
And she reached out to me and she said, I need to replace myself. Would you be interested in coming over here? And I was, again, it's like we do this to ourselves. I was like, uh, can I even do that job? Would mm-hmm. I be qualified? But uh, one of my mentors, the Reverend Dr. Regina Thomas, was like, yes, she wants the job. She's coming over. Like, where's <laughs> her resume to? I'm like, first of all, this is my Here's the attachment below. <laughs> <laughs> Can you go back in your office and let me finish my conversation? <laughs> but again, I, I needed that push. And I was very fortunate to be able to get that job and work with the secretary and our director of the Office of Public Engagement was Dr. Gabrielle Lemos, another amazing Latina woman. And it was just such an amazing experience being there because I don't think what a lot of people realize is the Department of Labor under Secretary Solis is 90% of her leadership was women. It was diverse women. And for Mm -hmm. me, it was just totally the example of what happens when you have a good woman in leadership who says, not only do I care about women, but I'm going to put women in these roles. Mm-hmm. And everyone got along. It was not catty, which so many people would just tend to think that when you have a whole bunch of women together, there's a whole bunch of drama. Like, no, we were very effective. We got yeah. so many things done. And just to have that experience to be able to really learn from the secretary. I was fortunate to be able to travel with her across the country and to just really see, too, how the Department of Labor impacts people's everyday lives and her commitment to making everything better from her work with Job Corps to technical colleges. We really dive in deeper into many of the reasons why African-American unemployment is so high and it's everyday things that people don't realize are a luxury and this is something I tweeted the other day because Congresswoman Deb Holland was talking about the lack of internet access in rural New Mexico and today we just like to think well anyone can start a home business you can't if you don't have regular access to internet it's a luxury for a lot of people And then when we're talking about jobs being posted, where are they posted now mainly? Online. How are you going to be able to apply for a job online if you don't have internet in your home, but you Mm -hmm. have to go to the library, but then how are you supposed to get there if you don't have reliable transportation, even public transportation? Exactly. And that's why I talk so much about how things on the local level are extremely important because we just like to think just high level with the presidency and Congress, but we know is these decisions that happen every day from these state and local elected officials that have a biggest impact. So Mm -hmm. it really opened my eyes just a lot to the really little things that we need to be doing as a country Mm -hmm. to have a better impact on people's lives. And it really impacts a lot of the work that I do at Emerge with recruiting women for these local seats, reminding them that your water board person is important, your sheriff is important, Mm -hmm. your city council is important. You got to pay attention to these races too. For, and so for folks who don't know, can you talk a little bit about Emerge and, and what it is and what, what you all do? Um, yeah. What, tell us about Emerge. Yes. So Emerge recruits and trains Democratic women to run for office. 
We started in 2002 with Emerge California, and in 2005, Emerge America was created to replicate into new states because it was being so effective in California. Mm -hmm. And I came to the network actually in 2006. I'm one of the co-founders of Emerge Nevada. And yes, and I tell people the Nevada of 2006 was not the Nevada you see today. It was very, like, very conservative, lots of men, very cowboy. And we sat around a table and we were just saying, okay, do we think we can change the face of politics in this country by recruiting more women in our state to run for office? And we said yes, and we became all in. And in 2016, Emerge Nevada celebrated the fact that it was Emerge alums who helped Nevada Democrats gain back control of the Senate and help gain a supermajority in the Assembly. And that's part of what we really do. Our whole focus is having a 365-day game plan on getting women to run for these offices. It includes women who are already saying, I know what I want to run for, I'm going to do it. Or that woman who's leading the PTA and doesn't realize she needs to be on the school board. That woman who's constantly volunteering for everyone else and needs to know that she needs to put her name on the ballot. The woman who's attending the county commission meetings and knows the issues like the back of her hand, moving her to the dais. It is making sure that we have equal representation in office. We have 520,000 elected offices in this country, and women only occupy about 20 to 25 percent of those offices. Mm -hmm. So it varies because we constantly are having elections. And women are 51 percent of the population, but we're not holding 51 percent of those offices. Mm -hmm. So for me, I'm just going for parity here. That's Mm -hmm. That's what I want. And that means that we need to start getting women off of the sidelines to run for these offices and change things because we know that when women are in elected office, they are there to get things done and not be somebody. They co-sponsor more bills, introduce more legislation, they care about the entire community, and they're about being collaborative and bringing consensus. So we just govern differently. And our network, we've now trained over 4,000 women to run for office. We have have 415 of our alums that won in 2018. We're already going strong in 2019. Emerge Wisconsin has some great wins. And it's about doing that work to make sure that women have that seat at the table that they deserve. So I have a, a few follow-up questions. There's so many good stuff in what you just shared. So many great things, and you and, and uh, I love all the work that that emerges as, as uh, um, is doing um, and and has done uh, you know across the country. You know, um, but one of my I have a few follow-up questions. So one is around uh, you around Nevada, more around sort of you know, the, the work there, and then more than around around some of the work in Emerge. Um, so it's interesting because you mentioned sort of that long-term work, right, that had to happen in Nevada, and really it's like a, a 12-year story, right, from 2006 mm-hmm. to last year right um mm-hmm. and can you can you speak can you 
speak to speak to listeners a little bit more about like why it's so important and what were the touch points across those 12 years, right? Because you mentioned at some point um, earlier that it's not just about, you know, what's happening at the at the federal level, that it's about what's happening at the sheriff board, that it's about really what's happening at that local level. Um, but I, I, I feel like the, the Nevada case is such a great example, right? Um, that now that there's a supermajority of women in the state legislature is not that something that happened overnight. Um, and I just, I feel like it's such a, a great story to tell to tell to listeners um in a 12-year story and one that's not over so i just want to also say that um so if you can just speak to that a little bit more just love to to hear more about about that absolutely and you hit it it is about long-term investment and this is something that i have to tell our newer affiliates that we have when they see nevada and oregon and maine and massachusetts doing great things is the fact that that really has taken a long time. Change doesn't happen overnight. And it has to be with doing the investment. And I'm going to be just very real here with our party is that we have not been really good at doing that investment of bringing up leaders, particularly young leaders and women leaders, especially women of color. We tend to want to go for the person who has name recognition, who comes from a political family, who can Mm -hmm. self-fund, and that leaves out a good chunk of the people who want to run for office or who are able to run for office don't know they want to run for office yet. So it's looking at where can we start to make a difference. So in my role at Emerge as the political director, I do our strategic recruitment and targeting So I'm looking at what seats that are held by Republican men that I can put in a woman or a woman of color, looking at areas where a woman has never served or where a woman of color has never served, or where can we just come in and help get more women elected in general or recruited and trained to run for office to make things better. So these are the things that I'm looking at. I think even switching from Nevada to Virginia, in 2017, Virginia had a really great year with getting some diverse women elected to the House of Delegates. And Julie Copeland, our great ED there, what we did is we looked at these districts. And they were districts that Hillary Clinton had won by five Mm -hmm. points or more, but they were held by a Republican man. And it's like, why? Because we know that the people in that district, they will vote for a woman and they'll, they'll vote for a Democrat. Mm-hmm. So it's looking at those seats and saying we can win this and finding the women who want to run or recruiting the women to do that. And we flipped 11 of those seats in 2017 by being that strategic and smart about areas where we can get some good women in office and we don't do that work alone. We do it with amazing partners. I I tell people just not one organization is going to create parity in this country. We have to do it as a team. So working with other groups such as First Gas, Run for Something, Emily's List, we were able to make that change. And as you mentioned, we saw going back to Nevada that they are now the first female majority state legislature. And when you look at the bills that are being passed there, one of our alums, Connie Monk, who's a freshman, she unseated a male Republican. She just got her sexual assault bill passed. And yes, um, Connie. By the governor. 
Connie. Yes, Connie. And this is and this and I just love that you share that, right? Because in the midst of like all the you know, not and I don't want us to go down that rabbit hole of all the all the um attacks around abortion and women's and women's reproductive rights because I wanted to mean I wanted to talk about the long term stuff, the stuff that's really happening that's good. Um because it just gives you the the contrast, right? When it just it's 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 right here, right? Um sorry. I just I'm like it just this is what this is what is happening in Nevada when you have women who are at the table, women who have different opinions. I mean, we got to be honest, not all women think the same, but mm-hmm. these are women who are coming together to say we need this sexual assault bill. When we look at what is happening in Colorado, so Colorado mm-hmm. ranks second with the number of women in the state house. Um, mm-hmm. Our emerge alum, Leslie Harris, she is doing amazing things around criminal justice reform in Oregon, where we have a strong emerge affiliate. They have done things with birth control, same day voter registration. Mm-hmm. When yeah, you have this, again, when you have women at the table, these are the things that happen. And it's just one of the many reasons why we need more women in elected office. Yeah. yeah. So I loved hearing you talk about Virginia um, in 2017. I know that was that was so huge. Um, but I feel like I have a question for you and feel free to be like, I don't know if I want to touch that. But I feel like after Hillary Clinton lost, everybody woke up and was like, we need to train women to run for office. <laughs> and Emerge was like, we've been here. Yeah. And so I'm curious, like, what was it like as an organization to to you know, partner with people while also hold that y'all are the experts on this. So I remember so very vividly election night 2016, and I had lots of friends who worked on the campaign. So Mm -hmm. early on, just from their intel, I could tell this really wasn't going our way. And I didn't know what the next day was going to be like. It could either be women are over it or women are going to be really excited. And for us that emerged, we woke up to tons of emails, phone calls, people DMing us on Twitter saying, Mm -hmm. I want to run for office. I want to start an emerge affiliate here. We really did see this energy that happened. And I tell people, I think that energy is twofold. I think a lot of it is women who were upset about mm-hmm. Hillary losing and they just had to do something. And then the other part was women who were saying, okay, if not Hillary, then who? Mm-hmm. Then me, it has to be me. I have to be the one who's out there fighting for these changes. And as we just continue to see the horrible things that happen in this country, mm-hmm. more and more women become energized be it something around the environment, reproductive health, the economy, they're taking it upon themselves. So it's really great to see that energy, but I'm also very honest about the fact that I think some women woke up, but a lot of women were already woke mm-hmm. and knew what a Trump presidency Thank would be you. like, and we know that Thank was one of the color. Like, mm-hmm. thank you, sis. We <laughs> we tried to tell y'all, no one. We're telling you. We tell us. you all the time. <laughs> you know, so I I always do push back on that a little bit, saying like, no, women of color, we were woke. Like we yeah. knew exactly what was going to happen. But it is great to see these new women 
we're very honest in acknowledging, I just thought I was fine voting. I didn't know that I needed mm-hmm. to do more. And mm-hmm. we welcome them in to do more. And it's great to have all the other organizations that have started doing training because the more the merrier. Because with Emerge, we do do our 70-hour signature program, mm-hmm. run over five to six months. And I know not every woman can do that. And if I tell a woman, oh, well, you want to run for office, you can only do Emerge, I'm doing her a disservice. I need to be able to offer her other opportunities for her to get the skills, the tools, the information that she needs. So that Mm -hmm. is me sending her to Emily's List. That is sending her to Vote Run Lead. That is sending her to She Should Run. Mm -hmm. All of these different opportunities for her to get that information and start her political journey. And it goes back to what I was saying earlier is we need a lot of groups doing this because Mm -hmm. even at the rate that we're at now, we're seeing more and more women running for office, winning. We're still not going to achieve parity until 2085. Oh my god! I don't know why that yeah. hit me so hard. That you just I, like, damn, Ashanti, you couldn't see her faces, no. but I wish you could. Oh. I mean, I, I just, so, I think I took a double breath in. Uh, wow, twenty eighty five. Still twenty eighty five. At this rate, this great rate we're at now of women, women running and winning twenty eighty five. So we do need all of the groups doing this work, and I welcome them into this world. The more the merrier so we can get this done and get this country back on track. Mm, that's incredible. Mm. And, you know, it's it's so interesting. Um, I, you know, I can only speak to my experience with the Emerge chapter, but that is a squad here in Massachusetts. <laughs> that yes. is a squad. Yes. squad. Those women back each other up. Raise Seriously. money for them, like it knock, is knock on doors for each knock other, knock on doors for yeah. each other, you know, tweet all whatever that. Whatever it like, is, it's it's really serious. Go I was, to parts of Massachusetts they've never been to before. Yeah, <laughs> literally. I was at I was at an event a couple weeks ago, and I was with a candidate, and there was a group of women in the corner, and she was like. Oh, I wish I had done a merge. They're all taking a picture. <laughs> She's like, it's like a sorority. I was like, you worked in government. You're fine. Like, you don't need to. But anyway, it's just like, it's powerful. Like, it's the way that Emerge doesn't just train women. It creates a network of people who support each other. And now, you know, more than ever, we really need that. And so I just want to, I want to say thank you for the work and, and thank you for the heart and the hustle that y'all have been putting in um, because it shows. It, it really shows. Mm-hmm. Thank you. And the alums, like, they have coined the term the Emerge Sisterhood. Yeah. So so it really is a sisterhood because you are in a class with other like-minded women who want to run for office. And we're creating that safe space to start, which I think is really important. So we know that if you're probably in a larger group, a mixed group, you're going to be really scared to ask some questions or say some things because you don't want to seem dumb or, oh, people are going to laugh at me. We're creating that environment where, look, this is the time to get it all out. But even after, you have all of these women who you can still call and lean on and they become each other's campaign managers, part of their kitchen cabinet. One of the things that we saw last election cycle is really how our alums were just uh, changing how campaigning worked because Mm -hmm. they would share office space. They would do joint canvases together. Yes, so cool. As you talk about like doing the fundraisers together, 
really showing that women do support other women. Mm-hmm. And well, I was talking to someone the other day and they said, do you all ever encounter, you know, the issue, they, they said issue in quotation marks, where women want to run for the same position? Well, they said where women run against each other. And I said, yes, but the fact is, what we say is that those women are running for the same position. And that should not so be a that's, problem. So that's the problem that we want. That, that's not yeah, a problem. Exactly. That's exactly like, what we want. Yeah. Like, this <laughs> Let's have that problem. Like, first of all, when a whole bunch of men are running, no one says anything Nothing. at all. Nope. Nope. It's fine for Tom, Jerry, Hank, Paul to all think that they're the best to do the job. But when women want to run, there's an issue. Multiple women want to run. But that is how we change the system is when you have multiple people to choose from and there are great women. And what we have found with our Emerge sisters is what they want at the end of the day is for one of them to come out on top, for it to be an Emerge woman, for it to be a woman. And then they rally around her. And that still shocks people that women can be running for the same thing and be happy when one of them doesn't get it. And even more so because you, you, I love that you've been talking about all the different roles that you can play, right? Yeah. Because there's running for office, but then there's all the other million things that need to happen mm-hmm. in the process, and the, and those those are all create opportunities for women to also be involved in the in the in the in the process, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because when when it's time to run for office and, and you have to build your team, guess what Tom does? They call Gary, then they call Hank, mm-hmm. and then they call Bob, mm-hmm. and they all show up mm-hmm. and they build their campaigns. So when women run, they need to be able to call their squad right yeah. and it doesn't well, mean that men and, and does exactly <laughs> and it doesn't mean that men don't come along but like if you don't have a concentration of us that know how to do those kinds of those those intangible intangible you know things yeah. for a campaign then how are we going to win yeah right because we want to run and win right 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 <laughs> So you've been talking a lot about sort of the, the work that Emerge has done, and we've talked about some of the long-term work that you've done. But um, I want to talk a little bit about what your goals are for the 2020 cycle, because um, obviously there's a lot of things that are that are happening, and not just the presidential race for listeners. Um, uh, so I'd love to hear about what uh, what what your goals are for for this upcoming um, cycle. Absolutely. So biggest goal is going to be concentrating on a lot of these state houses ahead of redistricting. The yes. fact is. We have yes. to get it done because if we think things are bad now, imagine another 10 years with all of this gerrymandering. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I say to people all the time is gerrymandering is another form of voter suppression. Yes. Period. Full stop. And period. if period. we don't, period. <laughs> and if we don't really get good Democrats elected in some of these races, it's, it's not going to be good. So for me, that is a really big focus is working with the DLCC, the National Democratic Redistricting Committee. I am DLCC so glad you are. So that amazing. is what you're saying, that yeah. that is one of your main goals. I'll continue. I'm sorry, but we yeah. got to keep our eye on that horizon because <laughs> yeah. 2021 will be here before we know it, folks. And that is the right. year that redistricting begins. But continue. <laughs> yeah, so really, really redistricting. But one of the things I say about Emerge is, Working on the state houses, this is something that we do every cycle. And that's how we got to where we are with mm-hmm. Nevada, Virginia, Maine, Colorado, New Mexico. Is also, we have to stop thinking in cycle to cycle because yes. yes. that doesn't help. Yes. We have to think long term because Republicans, they are really good at thinking long term. Mm-hmm. Well, mm-hmm. honestly, while we're thinking like 2020, 
they're already in like 2030, 2040, figuring out what they're going to be doing. So continuing our work around redistricting and then really looking to, again, at a lot of these local races that are happening, uh, particularly mayors. And when it comes to DAs and prosecutors, this is an area where we really need to do a lot of work. We know we got the amazing Rachel Rollins out there in Massachusetts. Yes. Love her. Love her. Who is See, we oh, never believe we never we never thought that I would have a district attorney that was a that was black. There was a black woman like Rachel yes. Rollins. We woke up in Boston, I was like, Oh my goodness. Oh, I know. <laughs> and she's doing amazing things because one of the things that we talk about all the time is that there needs to be changes in the criminal justice system. But that only happens when you change the faces of criminal justice reform. And that means that we need more women and women of color in these roles. So like 90% of prosecutors are white men. And then we want to wonder why our criminal justice system looks the way that it does. So really doing some targeted work to get women to run for these positions is something that Color of Change has been working on for the past few years. And for me, that's that's just something very personal, too, Mm -hmm. that I just want to see for my community because, I mean, I'm going to be, like, very honest here. I was going to say blunt, no pun intended, but we're talking talking with marijuana. (laughs) I'm just, I get so angry that there's an entire generation of black men that are locked up for marijuana Mm-hmm. And right now, it is a growing industry that's flourishing for white people. For white people, mm-hmm. we have I we have um really we I work with a woman named Counselor Kim Janey here here in Boston, and she's leading cannabis equity legislation exactly and on this issue. It's exactly so important, issue. and people just don't think about it. Like the people who show up to the Martin Luther King Day breakfast, like aren't thinking about engaging people of color in the growing marijuana industry. So I'm so glad that you said that. It's it's so important. Yeah. So so those are gonna be my focuses. And of course, mm-hmm. as you said, we have the presidential election cycle and don't know who our nominee is gonna be. I just plan to fall in line and just leave blood on the floor. Same here. Mm-hmm. Same oh. here, sis. Leave Woo! blood on the floor. Blood. That yes. is what I'm talking about. That's yes. what I'm talking about. No regrets. As no. my old high school basketball coach would say, you wanna leave it all on the court. Yeah. All, Whatever your all, all is, good. make sure you leave it there. Yeah. <laughs> So, you know, you've been the political director of Emerge for a little while now. Um, What's the most challenging part of your job? Oh, my goodness. The challenging part of being a political director for a political organization. (laughs) (laughs) Just a light question for you. You know, the thing that really makes my blood boil is the people who still don't believe in women. And who will literally say to my face that they can't find any qualified women to want to run for office. Oh, my God. And when they say this to me, I'm just like, oh, so you want to fight today. Because, (laughs) like, don't let the size and the voice fool you. These heels, these earrings, they will come off. And that really just makes me angry that so many people don't realize how amazing women are, how smart we are, the benefit of having us in elected office. And, like, I have to still fight a lot to make people take women seriously. And I hate that I even have to have that challenge. That is, that, well, 
That is ridiculous. And that's where the squad comes in Yeah, to help. the squad, Whoa. the emergency squad <laughs> that's kicks when, that's down the door. That's when the squad comes in, the, that, and you're like, yeah. ladies, let me tell you what this person yeah. just told me. <laughs> so, you know, ho- <laughs> right. holding like, that, mm-hmm. yeah. You can't find any qualified women? Well, let me slice this little list over to you. <laughs> just a little, yep. Um, so, you know, holding that challenge and holding those ignorant people in your daily job, but what are the things that bring you joy, that help you get through those moments um, and focus on the horizon? Oh, our alums, absolutely. Just yeah. seeing them when, whenever I am having those moments where I'm like, Whew, I'm tired of this. I'm going to go work at Sephora. I just go get on, <laughs> I just get on Twitter and I look at what our alums are doing. And that, that is all the energy that I need that I'm doing this for these women to help them win. Yeah. So just seeing their wins, but even when they lose, when they're like, I don't regret running, I'm going to yeah. run again next cycle. It's, these women, these 4,000 women, they keep me going. Um, all right. So we have two questions that we always like to ask as a, as a wrap up here. Um, and it's really trying to bring together sort of both who you are, you know, as your, your personal and your, your lived experience and all your professional work. So one of the one of the questions that we love to ask, because, you know, this work is long term work um, and it can be taxing sometimes, but it also brings us a lot of a lot of joy. Um, what is your what is what is self-care for you um, and how do you bring it into your into your life? You know, I think self-care is one of those hard things, but for me, it's just doing the little things. And what we do on our staff calls is we have them every Monday, and someone gets to ask a different question, and someone had asked, okay, you know, what's your little self-care that you do to get peace of mind? And for me, it can just even be turning my chair around for 15 minutes away from my computer Mm -hmm. and just doing some deep breaths and not being on my phone and just having that time. It can be listening to music in my car. It can be doing a face mask. I love me mm-hmm. some skincare. Mm-hmm. It can just uh, be chatting with my niece and my nephews, just hearing what's going on in their elementary school world makes everything <laughs> better. But I think self-care really is at least just finding those little moments for yourself and mm-hmm. I try to do that every day even if it's just something really small like that that's my self-care yeah mm, that's great it. that's great another question that we ask everybody every episode is what is your call to joy and justice Ooh, that's a good one it's usually when they'll this question. We switched it up this week, but she came <laughs> yeah. up with that. <laughs> My call to joy and justice, just really the fact that we have a place here as women, as women of color, and there's going to be the naysayers and there's the doubters that don't listen to them and to do it your way. You know, you're always going to have people who are going to say, do it this way or criticizing you. But just knowing that you belong in in doing it, I think that that's what I would say. Yeah. I hope that answers the question. That no, was, no. We're just, we're just, no, 
we're taking it in. We were just taking we're it just in, drinking so it in. So that awkward yeah. silence was just us, just like just absorbing the, 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 yeah. the response. But uh, but but I really want to thank you for for sharing, um, you know, sharing your time with us. You know, I feel like I, I got to know so much more about the the amazing work that um, not just emerges up to, but that you know that you've been um, a part of in this, uh, you know, in this important work. So so thank you. Um, and I know that we'll we'll cross paths um, along this uh, along this along this trek. Um, uh, so thank you. And also, I just I want to say, like, I I've been following you, your career for a while and you are just you're doing hard work and it shows and you're setting the bar for women in politics, regardless of whether they're black or white or whatever. And I just want to say thank you and that you have, you know, two people here who would be happy to work with you. And there's anything in Massachusetts that you need us to pay attention to. You you know how to get a hold of us. (laughs) Thank you, ladies, for what you're doing and for having this podcast. We need your voices in this movement. So, like, I I appreciate y'all and everything that you are doing on the ground in Massachusetts, a state where we know we still need to make things better for women, especially our women of color. Mm -hmm. So thank you, you, and thank you for this conversation. It's really been a deep one. I think the listeners will hear, like, I kind of got a little choked up earlier when talking about (laughs) losing friends and gaining friends, you know, but... Those are the hard things that we really don't talk about, but it's important to talk about. So thank you for asking that question. Yeah, of course, of course, we're, we're we're holding all the you know we're not we're more than just the institutional knowledge that we that we bring to 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 our roles, right? We gotta so lead with heart. We gotta lead with heart and also mm-hmm. mind and bring it all together. So I appreciate yeah. you for for your willingness to engage on that. Oh, of course, of course, <laughs> we we gotta be honest about it. We gotta tell the real truth. Definitely, definitely. month don't forget to subscribe to deep democracy on apple podcasts or wherever you listen so you won't miss our next episode deep democracy is produced and distributed by critical frequency our producer amy westervelt our theme song is we can't slow down by origami pigeon our cover art was drawn by alejandra ballesteros thanks for listening see you next time meetings and the world changes every after every meeting i've come out today like literally i came out of like a serious meeting and john's like um so the supreme court supports gerrymandering yeah um but we we dropped the citizen question question i come out of this shit i'm just like nancy pelosi's voting on like shitty immigration stuff i know